please turn to the book of Malachi. It will be on the screen, and it's also, I believe, printed in the green piece, the worship piece that you were handed this morning. Uh, if you read the, uh, the Wired article this month, you'll know that I'd, I didn't have the deepest of reasons for choosing to preach on Malachi. At the time, I figured, well, I have four weeks to preach. Malachi has four chapters. <laughs> Works well. Uh, but it hasn't taken me long to figure out that it, the, you know, the flow of his prophecy doesn't really fall out like that. It it's, not, it's not divided up like that. And so I, I really kind of wrestled with how am I, I'm going to uh, split it up into fours. It's a multifaceted book. And to adequately understand his message, it's absolutely paramount that we understand the context into which Malachi was preaching. And it's important for us to remember that the context of Malachi's preaching uh, is not limited to the time during which he preached, but rather encompasses all of Israel's history leading up to that point. And by the time Malachi delivers his prophetic message to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people had experienced 630 years of tumultuous history, which saw the rise and fall of many kings and judges amid an equally turbulent spiritual climate of religious syncretism, which is the mixing of all kinds of beliefs, and rampant idolatry. Israel had reached its lowest point when in 586 B.C. it was taken captive by the Babylonians. In time, God's chosen people would allow Babylonian religion to dilute and corrupt their commitments and worship of the one true God, Yahweh. Soon, Babylon itself would be overtaken by Persia, and with the exchange of power came the transition from one pagan belief system and all its influences to another. It was the lowest of all lows, and it was really the opposite of what they had expected, what was promised. Rather than possess a land of prosperity, Israel was led out of Jerusalem in shackles. Rather than enjoy a respected name among the nations as a light and witness to God, Israel was a nation scoffed at as impotent and pitiable. You can imagine how circumstances such as these would detrimentally affect Israel's relationship with God. The good thing about Persia, though, is that they allowed the nation of Israel greater liberty than the Babylonians. As a result, two very significant things occurred. The first... We, we read in 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, we learn of King Cyrus's inspired decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's the first thing. The second thing is that during Nehemiah's governance, uh, he rebuilt the walls of the holy city. So the walls are rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt. It looked as if the tides were beginning to turn in their direction. In the eyes and mind of Israel, all of the pieces were in place for the glory of the Lord to return to his people, as had been prophesied so many times before. Guys like Haggai and Zechariah prophesied messages of hope about God's glory returning to the temple in a greater way than it ever had before. That Jerusalem would again see peace and prosperity. That God's favor would again return to his people. That was the hope to which all of Israel clung, however tenuously that clinging may have become. So after hundreds of years of turbulent political instability, spiritual infidelity, infidelity and, and, and idolatry, 
and even slavery itself, the nation of Israel looked as if it was poised for restoration. The pieces were in place, and with the promises of prophets of old still ringing in their ears, they waited for decades. And nothing. Gradually, hope became cynicism. Faith became empty ritual. They were at their wits' end. Under the subjugation of a foreign power, a bruised and disillusioned Israel began to view the predictions of former prophets as cruel mockery. Instead of renewed vigor, Israel experienced only spiritual destitution. This is the context into which Malachi preaches. For three straight chapters, Malachi brings judgment after judgment relentlessly. Only in the last parts of the book does Malachi offer us a glimpse of hope, but that glimpse is the blinding light of the coming Messiah, and his glory is overwhelming. But as we begin our journey here this morning in chapter 1, I trust that many of us here today can relate to 5th century Israel in some capacity. Just like in Malachi's day, faith for us is largely belief in things unseen. But perhaps you're tired of waiting on the Lord. You've heard the promises of hope and redemption, and yet the gospel has seemed only to bring pain and tribulation to your life. The daily walk of faith is growing more difficult, and obedience and faithfulness to God is something not as ardently sought after as it once was. You find yourself simply going through the motions, and at times even asking yourself, what's the point? Read with me, please, Malachi 1, 1 through 2, 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? 
says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I already, I already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is with a heaviness that we hear this message. As much as it was for the people of Israel during Malachi's day, Lord, it is as much for us. Allow us to hear it completely. Soften our hearts to the conviction that needs to occur. Let us glorify you for your graciousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I went to a doctor's appointment with Beth a little over a year ago, and it was uh, the strangest appointment I had ever been to. Uh, The vast majority of our time was spent looking at the doctor's back as he asked Beth questions about how she'd been feeling. Not only was his body language detached, but uh, also his speech was muffled, and every now and then he would ask a question. Periodically, he would lazily peer over his shoulder and make seemingly obligatory eye contact. It was very odd. We didn't feel very cared for that day. The tenor of the man's posture and speech indicated that his attitude that particular day was one of disinterest and apathy. It was strange. In the first 23 verses of this short book, the prophet Malachi shows us that the tenor of our worship 
demonstrates our attitude before God. I believe this to be the overarching theme which runs through the, the text that we are looking at this morning. The tenor or tone or mood of Israel's worship had become bland, mundane, rote. This infected their entire posture before the Lord and how they related to Him as Father, as Redeemer, as a holy God. And so as we work through this morning's text, we will see that though we are adopted as sons, we dishonor our Father. And though we've been ransomed as slaves, we disrespect our Redeemer. And finally, though we are charged as priests, we disgrace our calling, which is a minor alteration from what you have in your outline in the piece this morning. We disgrace our calling. So the first dynamic we are going to look at in these first six verses is, is, is that though we are adopted as sons, we dishonor our Father. Scripture often refers to all of God's children as sons by way of our right of inheritance in Christ, the Son. And so, as, and so we are adopted as sons. And we dishonor our Father by, one, questioning His love for us and by forgetting His promises. God's love for Israel is not a foreign concept. It was written across the pages of Old Testament history, beginning in the, various early, in the early parts of Genesis. He says here in Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The question is filled with incredulity and cynicism. But God dignifies their question. He graciously answers them. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's kind of a rather odd response to the question, but it's rather poignant. Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac, Esau being rejected by the Lord and Jacob inheriting God's blessing. The Lord explains, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God is saying, you didn't earn my love. You were chosen. I elected to give it to you. You are my adopted sons. It wasn't as if Jacob was more lovable than Esau. And by saying that he hated Esau, it's not meant to express personal animosity, but simply the rejection that goes with making a decision such as that. It is fitting, however, because Esau and his descendants would, over time, warrant God's continual judgment. But the question, how have you loved us, must have weighed so heavily on the heart of God. These are his own children. His very character, his very covenant is being questioned. It's clear, however, that Israel was not only questioning God's love for them, but they had forgotten his promises. By way of his elective love of Jacob, God's covenant with Israel, that was their sure foundation for all time. We read in verses 3 through 6, speaking of Esau, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, Edom being the country Esau and his descendants founded, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts of Israel. Israel, weak and subdued, had become embittered at the prosperity of the surrounding nations, particularly Edom, given their historical relationship. But God reminds them of their place of privilege within His eternal covenant. He reminds them of the promises inherent in being God's adopted children. 
the nation of Israel had allowed the claustrophobia of their situation, the oppressiveness of their situation, to infect their worship to such an extent that even the non-negotiables of God's economy had come into question. God's own character, His love for them, His very intentions for them. God then asks the question in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? I have a niece who was adopted from China. Her her name is Hope. And when Hope was an infant, she was found in a box on the side of a road. She had been left for dead. But uh, by God's grace, she was found. She was brought into an orphanage from the very same orphanage that uh, my uh, Beth's uncle uh, adopted her from. Now, Hope now is, is a happy, healthy, vibrant little girl who rides horses and enjoys the lavish love of her parents. And although Hope is not at an age where she can comprehend the riches of grace that brought her into her current family, it's staggering to consider the alternative. It took a long, arduous, expensive process to bring Hope home. But even now, she's largely unaware of her own personal history. And it's interesting that if children ever truly comprehend the relationship between parents and child, it's usually only after they've grown up, matured, left the house, and perhaps even had kids of their own. Like hope, the children of Israel were chosen. But they had misplaced their own history. And if you are here today as a confessing believer in Jesus Christ, you too have been chosen. But maybe being adopted into God's family has lost its luster. Perhaps you're in a a difficult place or maybe have been for some time. Perhaps the tenor of your worship is suffering. You're tired of looking around and seeing the Edomites prosper, all the while feeling like you're in a cage of stagnancy. Maybe you've become cynical in your faith as a result, and so you question and doubt. Maybe God isn't who He says He is. He doesn't really love me. Look at their lives, and then look at mine. All too often, our circumstances can result in a spiritually myopic perspective that gradually erodes our ability, our ability to accept and trust that God's objective promises for us are really true. I mean, Tom has said it time and again from this pulpit. It's a lot easier for us to believe God's promises for somebody else. It's harder for us to accept them for ourselves. We know we are adopted as His own, but that reality can lose its luster amid strife and pain and troubles, especially if those seem ongoing. Like the nation of Israel in Malachi's day, we sometimes question God in a very similar manner. You say you love me, God, but how? How have you loved me? You see, the dishonor inherent in that question lies not in the honesty expressed, but in the belief that God is actually not who He says He is. Sons, we dishonor our Father. Not only that, though we are ransomed as slaves, we disrespect our Redeemer. It's been established that it's not God's love for us that is to be questioned. It's our love for God. Our actions can at times communicate quite the opposite of love and devotion. And to be sure, the rest of our text this morning deals with Israel's priesthood. 
And Israel's priesthood can roughly be synonymous with modern-day clergy like me, Tom, and the rest of the pastoral staff. But significant differences do exist. The point is that even though the text addresses priests specifically, I truly believe the application is universal because Malachi addresses the abuses, exploitation, and blatant neglect of Israel's prescribed form of worship, which all of us are familiar with. It says in the second half of verse 6, And if I am a master, where is my fear? Where is my fear? Where is my respect? Though ransom is slaves, we disrespect our Redeemer. You see, Israel was a slave. Having experienced 400 years of bondage in Egypt, but God had redeemed them, saving them from the hand of Pharaoh. And although they found themselves here under the political thumb of Persia, it was far, a far cry from slavery. And it made me think of the Christian life. Believers have been ransomed as slaves to sin by the blood of Christ, our Redeemer. But the full fruits of that redemption are not yet come. The tension between the already and not yet. They are not yet realized, just as the promises of God in Christ had not yet been realized for Israel in Malachi's day. They looked ahead to Christ. And as the thumb of Persia was a constant reminder to Israel of the promises not yet realized, the weariness of the world and even our own sinfulness is our reminder that the fullness of our salvation has not yet come. As Israel looked to the coming Messiah, we look to the return of the Messiah. In the meantime, we stumble and fall and fail often. We disrespect our Redeemer by scorning His grace and minimizing His majesty. Malachi highlights for us in verse 7 that Israel was offering polluted sacrifices on the altar, offering animals that were blind, lame, sick. The prophet rightly points out that Israel wouldn't dare offer such offensive things to their Persian governor, and yet they deemed them acceptable for God Almighty. You see, the prescriptions God gave, gave Israel to properly order their worship was a gift of grace to enable them to come into His presence and pursue righteousness. But the result... The nation of Israel sighs in verse 13. What a weariness this is. Israel had allowed the obscurity of their situation to dull their zeal and deaden their faith. Consequently, they offered slovenly, irreverent, hypocritical worship. Because one, that's all they cared to muster. Two, it's better than nothing. But they were wrong. God laments these reprehensible actions and expresses in verse 10 that it would be better if someone simply shut the doors of the temple than to let these atrocities continue. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Not only did they scorn his grace, but they minimized, they diminished his majesty. We see in verse 11, God again reminding them of his majesty and glory. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You see, the tenor of our worship demonstrates our attitude before God. 
The world is watching. And our behavior speaks volumes of what we think of God. Verse 13, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. God's like, what you're saying in bringing me junk is that I'm junk. You have no fear of me. You have no respect. Essentially, With hearts like yours, I don't want your stinking offerings. Now, I'm a really good gift giver. Uh, My family exchanges names at Christmas due to the numbers, and uh, you know it's a good year when you've pulled my name. (laughs) Now, the key is listening, knowing the person well, and obviously having a deep uh, love for them. For instance, Beth has always wanted to see Cirque du Soleil. And so I surprised her by getting her tickets to next month's show. It's really not that hard. But our culture, our culture has come up with all kinds of reasons for us to give each other gifts, all kinds of occasions that we've created. It's not what it used to be. The conversations are more forced. Holidays are awkward. The personal comments on the periodic cards have diminished to merely a salutation. This describes the heart of Israel in Malachi's day. The tenor of our worship demonstrates our attitude before God. Now, when I say worship, many of you think of what we are doing here this morning, and you're partly correct. As such, in what ways are you bringing polluted offerings to the Lord? Do you simply mouth the words to the praise songs as you contemplate the starting lineup this afternoon? Do you get out your checkbook and write that tithe begrudgingly because it's your obligation every month? Maybe you serve in some capacity only out of a sense of duty and not out of joy. Have your prayers become like carbon copies of themselves with no freshness or life to them? And maybe it's subtler. But if you can relate to these in any way, understand that the tenor of our worship demonstrates our attitude before God. But worship is just not for Sundays, it's for every day. It encompasses all of life. Perhaps your devotional life has become a thing of rote compulsion that happens infrequently at best. Maybe the very word of God has become ordinary, and the dryness of your soul does not respond to its piercing truth. Your doubt and cynicism has grown such that to you God has indeed become that mythical ogre in the sky that doesn't really care about your personal problems. Perhaps you've even said to yourself, what a a weariness this is. I have. But without being insensitive to the troubles and pain, chapter 2, by highlighting the ways in which they've to, chapter 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I think the key phrase in those verses is, quote, because you do not lay it to heart. Dr. Mark Dalby, as a warning against spiritual dryness while at school, 
gave the very first chapel message I ever heard at Covenant Seminary. You might be thinking, well, with all that time spent studying the Word, how could you become dry? Well, there's a very big difference between committing God's Word to your mind academically and committing it to your heart spiritually. The priests in Malachi's day knew the truth. They knew what God expected of them, but they didn't value it. It didn't mean anything to them because it hadn't shaped their hearts. The priests had ignored God's commands, and he rebuked them. The manner by which he chose to do so was rather interesting. It's my understanding that the stomach contents and other undesirable parts of the animal were to be removed and not included in the offering. They were put in a pile outside, which would later be burned up. By describing their condemnation in such a way, God is saying that the priest's behavior was as revolting to him as discarded excrement. Malachi explains the, Malachi explains the gravity of the situation further in verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. When it comes to communicating God's word and exhorting God's people through preaching, the job of the pastor is not to make friends. It's not to tickle the ears of his congregation. It's not to share his opinions. It's not to pander to outside influences. It's not to have a conversation. It's not to campaign for a particular issue. It's not to raise money. And it's not to give a talk. The job of the pastor is to unwaveringly preach the gospel in all of its glory and conviction, regardless of how the people respond. The priest in Malachi's day had failed to do this. The opinions of the people grew more important to them than the very word of God, and so they ignored God's commands. Many pastors in our day and age have done the same. That is why at our church, you are charged with keeping us accountable. Not only personally in our relationships, but via the arm of the session, comprised of God-fearing elders from within this congregation that you have elected to serve in that capacity. God will not be mocked. And he will preserve his truth and honor. He will safeguard his covenant. But the priests of the nation of Israel had corrupted that covenant. Verse 4 and 5. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The tribe of Levi was designated with the task of guiding, teaching, and officiating the nation of Israel in the worship of Yahweh. The sanctity of worship and the pursuit of His holiness, that was their sole occupation and calling. We read, starting in the latter half of verse 8, "...you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts." And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. You see, the priests the, the priest grew more concerned with the opinions of the people than they did with the approval of God himself. God won't stand for that. 
He will defend and protect His covenant. Now, the application to modern-day pastors is obvious. But the principles discussed are more universal when we consider that theologically, all disciples of Christ, all believers, are called priests. 1 Peter 2, 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All disciples of Christ, not just pastors, all disciples of Christ are commanded to know God's word, to worship him in spirit and truth, to devote our lives to him, to give him the first fruits of our tithes and offerings, and to honor the covenant of his enduring love for us. Not only are these his commands, but they are simply a natural outgrowth of a life being transformed by Christ. But it's a lot easier than said. It's a lot easier said than done, is it not? It's a hard thing to do. Sometimes a dutiful disciple is the last thing you really feel like being in a moment. The nation of Israel was at their wit's end. They didn't see the point any longer. They asked, where are you, God? How have you loved us? The elements of daily worship had become meaningless, and as a result, corporate worship had become severely compromised. They questioned the love of God the Father. They scorned the grace of their Redeemer, and they corrupted His timeless covenant. Christians have a high calling. And although we stand on this side of redemptive history some 2,430 years after Malachi Malachi prophesied, we still encounter the same difficult spiritual dynamics in our lives as the nation of Israel as the nation of Israel did back then. Sometimes we ask the very same questions. Where are you, God? How have you loved us? The heaviness of life and even our own sin can be so oppressive at times. Maybe today some of you are at a point of disillusionment and dryness. Perhaps as the alarm sounded this morning to get up and get ready for church, you simply groaned. And glancing at the dusty Bible on your nightstand or dresser, you sighed and said to yourself, what a weariness this is. If that is you, hold on. And realize that you are not alone. Every one of us can relate to that in some capacity. I can, certainly. Probably more frequently than you would be comfortable with. And so the hope that I offer to you is the only hope present in our text this morning. And that is the affirmation of the character and glory of God himself. And so lift up your eyes beyond the confines of your circumstances and take hold of the promises of God. He proclaims to his children in verse 5, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If you are numbered among his children, Rest assured that a father such as this, a redeemer such as this, a king such as this, will not allow his children to remain in a state of despondency. He is one who restores. He is a father that loves. He is a redeemer 
and he is our king. 